From the headquarters of Team Cowboy, coming to you all the way from Anderson, South Carolina, this is the Finance Cowboy Show, where we're going to teach you how you can create your dream life through the greatest asset in the world, real estate. I'm your host, Jaron Sustar, and I went from having zero properties in 2018 to a portfolio of over $5 million worth of real estate by 2021. And I am excited to be able to teach you all the lessons, tips, and tricks that I have learned throughout my journey, while also introducing you to some of the greatest real estate minds in this entire world. So without further ado, let's get this party started. Seth, what's up, man? I'm super stoked to have you on the show today. Hey, Jaron. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. The the famous RE tipster, been rocking the blog since 2012. Yeah. Um, how'd that come about, man? What made you say, all right, I'm going to start writing a blog on buying land? Yeah. No, that's a great question. So I never thought I would do this kind of thing, but uh, at the time I had been investing in land for about four or five years and I discovered this blogger, a friend of mine introduced me to him. His name was Pat Flynn, smartpassiveincome.com. And uh, it was the first blog I ever really paid attention to. And I was just like amazed by what he was doing. Like he was giving away so much helpful information, had nothing to do with real estate, but it was just I knew that for people who were interested in that kind of thing, like blogging online, like it was just really good stuff and it was pretty much free. And he was publishing these income reports at the time where he was talking about how much he was making from his blog and he was making like six figures a month doing this. And, I, and the weird thing was like, I never felt like he was selling me on anything. And it was kind of a, on one hand, it was kind of a mystery. Like, how is he making so much money when he's just being a nice guy on the internet? But then when he showed how he did it, with like affiliate links and that kind of thing. I was like, wow, like I could, I could kind of see myself doing that because I'm not a good salesperson. I don't like selling people on stuff. I'm pretty good at just showing people how stuff works. And uh, so I just decided to do it. And um, it turned out to be really fun. Like I never knew how much I'd enjoy it until I started doing it. And it's been a really fun ride. And you're still going strong with it today. Like it's rock strong. Yeah, pretty much since then, it's been at least a blog post a week, sometimes two. Wow. Good for you, man. Retipster.com. I mean, Seth has been around doing this a long time. He's very, very well known in the real estate and obviously the blogging space. What was that evolution like for you? Like, uh, because a lot of people, they don't, they don't understand how you make money on blogs, right? So what does that look like, like with affiliate links and all, and how do you go about acquiring those? Do they come to you? You join the impact sites, all that good stuff. Yeah. It's a little bit of both. Yeah. It's uh, it's very much of, talked about this analogy a lot. So there's uh there's like this hunter mentality and then there's the farmer mentality. So a hunter really enjoys the thrill of the chase, like chasing down big deals and getting big paychecks and working really hard and that kind of thing. Uh a farmer is more of a they're not really turned on by the thrill of the chase. Like they don't not really attract they'd kind of rather just plug away and keep their head down and work day after day. And they're fine with that the wind's coming smaller and slower, but in return, they get predictability and there's not a whole lot of surprises. And that's very much what blogging has been like in my experience. And luckily that's kind of how I'm, how I'm wired. Like, I don't mind that. I kind of enjoy it. So it's people. And it's, so you kind of have to, uh, the only reason I've been able to survive as long as I have doing this is because I really have fun with it. Like if it wasn't fun for me, I never would have lasted, but it's the kind of thing where like, I would probably do it for free. I just enjoy this process of like taking complex ideas or taking issues that I've struggled with or problems that I see other people struggling with 
and I know the big problems and putting in the work to figure out like, what is the right answer? Like, how do we nail this problem so that nobody ever has to talk about it again? Like once you read this blog post or watch this video or listen to this podcast episode, you're done. We've just solved that for you. And uh, it's just a lot of fun to do that. And I can't say I always uh, succeed at that, but that's always the, the intent when I go into something like I don't, I don't just make noise on the internet. Like if something is worth doing at all, it's worth doing really well. Well, and I, it's evident by how long you've done it. So you're in your 12th year, if my math's correct. Yeah. And, and um, you don't survive 12 years just trying to make a dollar and not adding value. Yeah. There's a lot of flash in the pan people who come along just to try to earn a buck, but there's no real value behind it and they just don't last. And so yeah. when you look at somebody who's stood the the test of time in a certain arena, you know that they've built this following, this trust because they've been delivering yeah. week after week, day after day, month after month. And yeah. kudos to you, man. I think what most businesses, what's the percentage you may know fell after two years and then a certain uh, even bigger number, whatever, after five years. And I think that most people get caught up with just making money. And you said it perfectly. I would do this for free. I love it so much. And so people get gung ho. They find an idea that they can go make money on, but they don't love it. And so yeah. then they have to wake up every day and then it gets really, 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 really hard. And they walk away because there's no joy or passion in it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, unfortunately it happens too often. People say, Oh, businesses fail for this reason, that reason. Dude, I think more than any financial, more than anything else, people just quit. Yeah. 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 It's uh, I don't know what the stats are, but I, I do know even in like the real estate space where I operate, I've seen a, a lot of people come and go. And I think people sort of, uh, since I've been doing this blogging thing, I've seen a number of different people kind of come and go where they get into this space of trying to, whether it's trying to make like a blog or a podcast or I don't know, come out with some kind of course or make a name for themselves. And, uh, you know, it, I think maybe they fail for different reasons. Maybe it's, um, they kind of get into it with the wrong expectations. Like if I just put it out there, like the people will come and I'll make a bunch of money or get famous or something like that. People have different motivations for doing this stuff. But, um, I think for me, it's, I kind of like, don't know when I'm beat. So like when things don't go well or don't happen, like, I just don't know what else to do. So I just keep doing it. Like I, I know I enjoy the work and I, I believe in the fundamental concept. So like I enjoy it. If I think it's real, I'm going to keep doing it until this becomes miserable and I just can't do it anymore. And luckily it's kind of worked out. So, you know, I've, I've not had to go so long with, you know, no feedback. I think it took me like a year before I made a, a penny doing Ari Tipster. So that's a long time to be working hard at something and make nothing back from it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it takes. Dude, I'm, oh, my. I mean, we can sit here and talk about business all day. It takes yeah. so much work. Oh, my gosh. It takes so much work uh, to get something off the ground. And then I'm sure that second year you weren't necessarily raking in money, which, again, you were just enjoying the process. But yeah. from a financial standpoint, it takes time. It, mm -hmm. it is a grind and you're pushing through roadblocks and you're learning things and it's fun. Many days it's fun because you're, it, if you enjoy growth, then that's exactly what you're doing. Yeah. But always my struggle, cause I tend to go the, the hunter route more than the farmer route. I'm yeah. trying to pace better. Mm -hmm. You know, but my thing is like that pace, like how do I slow it down? Let's yeah. like, Let's play at a good speed here because if not, you're going to burn out even because yeah. you, I think you can go into something loving it, go too hard, not have work-life balance. And then all of a sudden this thing that you got joy from 
isn't joyful anymore yeah. because you created a beast. And yeah, I, I think like most of my entrepreneur friends are kind of like you. They're hunters. I actually feel like I'm somewhat of an anomaly because I don't know. Maybe it's like uh, familiar with like the, the Enneagram test, like the type three achiever. Like a lot of people just have these really high ambitions and that kind of thing. And I have that too, but it's, um, I don't know. I just, I think I value security and predictability more than most people at the expense of like fast, huge gains. And as a result, like I'm pretty sure I'm never going to become a billionaire. It's just not where I'm headed. I'm more taking the, the low steady approach, if that makes sense. <laughs> And that's why you're more successful than most of us. <laughs> Doing it the smart way. Everybody listen, do it Seth's way. That's, you need a shirt that says, do it Seth's way. Oh, yeah. man, that would be fantastic. All right, so land. I talked to a lot of people about a lot of different types of real estate on this show. Everybody wants to do commercial real estate or they flip or, you know, everybody's into this creative finance right now. You've been doing land since 2009. Again, I think this goes back to your personality. It's like so yeah. many people get distracted by what's the bright and shiny object. You're like, yeah. no, nah, I'm picking land. What is this? Five, 15 years ago. Yeah. And I'm just going to stay with land while everybody else is trying all this other stuff. Let me just keep doing my bread and butter. So why land? Yeah. And what does that look like for you? Yeah. So when I first heard about land, I was kind of like, what? Like, why would I do land? That sounds really boring and dumb. And I just I don't get it. And most people are like that when they first hear about land. But the reason land makes sense, there's actually a lot of reasons. Um, first of all, it makes sense when you can buy deals a lot cheaper than what they're actually worth. And this is true for any kind of asset that's worth anything, whether it's gold or cars or jewelry or anything. If you could go out and buy, you know, a $40,000 car for five or 10,000 bucks, you probably wouldn't be that hard to flip that thing and make money. And that's exactly what we're doing with land. And uh, I think the margins have changed over the years. It's, got, it's gotten a little bit more competitive, yeah. but uh, it's the same basic concept where we're just finding people that own vacant land and they don't want it and they don't care about it. And they're apathetic about it. And for one reason or another, they're willing to sell that thing for a huge discount. And um, like generally, I, I would probably never pay more than 50% of a property's market value. That's considered a lot for me to pay that much. Um, a more normal range would be like 30 to 40% of its value. And, uh, back when I started, it was more like 10 to 20% of its value. But the beautiful thing is you can buy these vacant lots. And as long as you're pretty confident, it's worth a lot more way up here. You don't have to do anything to it. You can just take the deed and list the thing for sale and sell it. And, um, it's kind of awesome. And it's actually way better than houses because with houses, you got to take out loans. You got to race against the clock. You got to deal with tenants and contractors and all these people make everything harder. And with land, most of those people aren't involved. It's just a piece of dirt. And really what you're selling is a piece of paper, which is that deed. It, um, it's pretty sweet. And, and because of that, that's part of what makes land so great is that it's a pretty boring asset. And boring is a good thing because we don't want surprises or people calling us at three in the morning and flaking out and not doing what they're supposed to do. So. Picture this. You're ready to put an offer on the perfect investment property, but then you hit a wall. Financing. Dealing with hard money lenders is the biggest headache us real estate investors have. And I thought that's just how hard money had to be until I met Backflip. Backflip is totally different. They're changing hard money by making loans actually stress-free. 
And I know this firsthand because I personally use them for my own deals. It's the perfect combo of tech and real people. Their free app makes everything more efficient and every loan is personalized to what matters to you, be it low interest, high leverage, or zero payments until you sell or refi. And while other lenders just write a check and forget about you, Backflip has been a true partner for my business. Call them anytime with any question. Even if you don't borrow for them, you can use their app to pull comps and estimate profits. Discover the Backflip difference at backflip.mobi backslash finance cowboy pod. Wow. Dude, this is really cool. I'm excited to unpack this. So you you guys buy raw land. The key is undervalued, which, you know, I buy a lot of single family homes. That's that's my bread and butter. Same thing. Undervalued. I, I tell folks all the time whatever strategy you're going to use, just make sure you're buying at a discount. Because if you buy at a discount, you're going to protect yourself and it gives you options Yeah, to choose which route you want to go with it once you acquire it. Mm-hmm. But from this land side of thing, like break it all down for me. So where do you guys look for land? What, like, how's it, like size dimensions? Are you looking for certain things? What's the strategy for buying it? How do you comp it? Like I can comp, a single family home in two seconds by hopping yeah. on Zillow. How do you find the cost of land? Are you guys developing it at all? You bring in power utilities and then flipping it. What's all that look like? Yeah, no, those are all awesome questions. So in terms of where you get started, like how you find these people. So when I get started and by the way, this isn't the right approach for everybody because it's got some drawbacks to it. But the first way I did it was I found my, well, I went to several different counties and I got their delinquent tax list, which is a list of properties in that county that have not been seized by the county yet, but they will be soon if they don't pay off their taxes. So they might be like one to two years past due on their taxes. And usually, uh, you know, the reason this kind of list makes a lot of sense is because these people have a big motivation to do something, either pay those taxes off or sell the thing. And if somebody's letting their taxes go that far past due, Maybe it's because they don't care about it, or maybe they forgot about it, or maybe they can't afford it. And you can show up with a solution and say, look, you know, truthfully, you're about to lose your property and get nothing for it. Why don't you let me give you 500 bucks? I'll pay off your taxes. I'll make the problem go away. I mean, you're getting nothing anyway. How about we just make this thing easier for you? And uh, I found a lot of people would say yes to that. And, you know, for good reason, because why would they not take money instead of losing everything? And uh, the drawback to that is those lists can be kind of difficult to get from the county. And then once you do get them, they're kind of a nightmare to sort through in a lot of cases. I just did it recently. (laughs) And and also like when you finally contact these people and the people that, you know, will call you back, a lot of times the properties are, well, I don't want to say junk, but like there's some issue with it. Like you kind of see it and you're like, oh, okay. I get why you don't want this thing, or I get why you're letting it go past you. Like maybe it's so small, it's not buildable, or maybe it's landlocked, or maybe there's some huge title issue. And that doesn't mean it's a deal breaker necessarily, but you just have to factor those negatives into your offer and make sure you're paying, paying a very, very, very low price so that there's no way you can lose on the back end when you try to sell it. So that's one way to do it. You could also use a data service, and there's several of them out there. I've got a lot of tutorials on how to use them on my YouTube channel at RE Tipster. There's Data Tree, there's PropStream, there's Property Radar. But the idea is you can build a list of property owners in any part of the part of the country, really. And you can narrow it down to vacant landowners who maybe live in a different county or a different state. 
and do the same kind of thing where you send the mail. These days, people are doing cold calling and sending texts and ringless voicemail, all kinds of stuff. And these people will uh, respond to that. And um, I think the the downside to that approach, I guess it kind of depends on a lot of different factors, but you will usually find a lower level of motivation because these people don't necessarily have delinquent taxes. They're more just part of the general population that happens to own land. So, and there's different things you can do to narrow it down to improve your response rate. But, um, but the upside is it's way easier than dealing with the county's list. So that's why a lot of people, even though it might not have a better response rate, it's just easier. And people are like, I don't want to burn out dealing with counties. I just want to make this thing, you know, lower, lower resistance to try to get my marketing out there. But wouldn't you say that's if you got more capital, if you don't have the capital to put into marketing, then the tax place sounds pretty darn awesome. I'm with you, like trying to get that from the counties. And then, oh man, we just had our tax sale. I don't know, a month and a half ago, two months ago. And going through that list, dear Lord, yeah. it was insane. Yeah. And they're just giving you like tax map numbers. Mm-hmm. So then you have to go and yeah. cross reference those tax map numbers yeah. to find what the actual address and property is. And then like, you can't just like call the person, Hey, can I come view this? I see you're on the tax, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. you can, like you can, but I'm thinking more from a house perspective. It's not like, oh, it's an open house or a showing just because they're on the tax. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And well, what you're saying there, that's actually a different thing than the, the delinquent tax list. And that's something. So we're talking two separate things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's a, it's a very, very common thing. Even when you call the county many times, they will misunderstand what you're asking for. They'll think that you're asking for that list of properties going to tax sale, but that's not what we want. It's okay. too late at that point. Like it's going to auction. You're going to have to compete against all kinds of people for those deals. I've tried to do that before and I walked away with no properties. It's a lot harder. What you want to do is find the people who they still own their property, but they're going to lose it soon. So, and that's why you have to be really clear about what you're asking for from the county. Because if you just say, yeah, I want the, the tax list, they're going to think you mean the tax sale list. And that's not it. We want the thing that's, it's not there yet because you want to be able to reach out to that private owner and negotiate just with them where nobody else knows that deal exists yet. And that's how you can get these really low deals with a lot less competition. Interesting. So you're finding them not necessarily close to tax sale time. You're looking more like for the length of delinquency or are you trying to run it up as close as you can to tax sale? Yeah. So you have to understand uh, like in the state and county where you're working, there's usually a date per year where if you have, you know, one or two years of delinquent taxes and you go past that date, boom, that's when the county comes in and seizes your property. So for example, if that date was March 31, you would want to make sure you're contacting those people probably around like January or February so that you have time to negotiate and actually close on the deal before March 31. Because if you go past that, they've just lost the property. They don't own it anymore. The county does. And it's too late. In that following year, that's when those properties will go up for tax sale. So um, it also helps to understand the state that you're in, if it's a tax deed or a tax lien state. Uh, I got a pretty detailed blog post that explains the difference between the two and how each one works. Um, but yeah, so usually about half the uh, about half the states in the country are tax deed states, and that's where it works the way I just described it. The other half are tax lien states where the county doesn't seize the property. They put a lien on it and you can buy that lien. And uh, it's kind of, you know, beyond the scope of what I'm trying to explain here. But, um, no. but just, you know, you, you want to understand how that state works, wherever you're working. 
but most of them aren't the tax lien states, but there are some that are. Yeah, the ones that I get that kind of list in are the tax deed states. So, yeah. When you um, when you're looking at like a certain location, are you trying to be close to an interstate? Uh, you don't care if it's rural. Like, how do yeah. you how do you dial that in? Yeah, no, great question. So, um, if it's just a, a land flip, like I'm if I'm just trying to buy the thing for less than it's worth and sell it for closer to what it's actually worth. I don't care that much about the location. Um, I actually prefer that it's rural, like an hour to three hours outside of a big metropolitan area. So like if I was doing this, I don't know, in Michigan around Detroit, I would not be looking in Detroit. I'd be looking at those counties surrounding the Detroit area because the idea is, um, you know, the further away you get from the city, the fewer like rules are going to be in place like they're not going to make sure you're mowing your lawn every week it just it can grow wild and nobody cares and also it's close enough to be like a home away from home for the people that do live in the city so they could drive like an hour one way to get there and back um and uh, it's also a lot less competitive and a lot cheaper and uh there's lots of different reasons for that but um in terms of like does it need to be on a busy road or anything like that not really it just needs to be a desirable property from the standpoint of it can be used for something that's worth a lot. Like you want to understand what that property's highest and best use is. Um, and it's nice when you can find properties that have like multiple uses, like you could use it for recreation or you could put a mobile home there, or you could park an RV there, or build a house there. Cause that gives you access to a lot of potential buyers who can use that. Or maybe you can put a storage facility there. Which yeah, that too. I've done that too. <laughs> Oh man, this is, this is so interesting. I love land. My, uh, I think we talked about this when we were at FinCon with each other. I mean, yeah. My best friend who got me into real estate, they started with single family homes. They kind of had the progression that most investors do. Yeah. They jumped into the land space, not full time, but it, they have like a vision of what they do. And I just remember him calling me one day and being like, Jaren, this is, this is the best thing in our portfolio. He's like, <laughs> and they were doing it a little differently. Like they had like certain parameters. They were, certain acreage and they were trying to be x amount of distance because we're already rural so like they were going even deeper like this close to the interstate blah 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 and they were buying these you know whatever 100 acre plot subdividing them into five to ten acres and then mm -hmm. selling them and he's like bro we we're doing this and most of it's like seller financing which we can talk about here in a minute that they yeah. were doing and they're like bro we're turning these things around like subdividing these lots putting them up for sale and like we're getting the whole deal done in record time and mm -hmm. we have little capital in the deal yeah and uh, I just remember when their eyes opened to that, they they really went all in on it. And it seems like, like you mentioned earlier, it's got more competitive because it makes sense. If yeah. you if you know what you're looking for, and you're not having to dig, you know, for the houses and manage contractors and blah blah blah, then it can be a lot simpler process. Yeah. Uh, how do you go about comping? The, these pieces of land once you find how do you know what they're worth when you get them and then what they're going to be worth after you yeah you know, i guess not fix them up but yeah. like after you acquired them yeah no that's a great question i think that's one of the hardest things about the land business honestly uh, and it does depend on the property if it's what they call an infill lot where say it's one of a hundred different cookie cutter lots in a big subdivision uh, that's pretty easy because it's, there's a lot of comps just right around it and you can see, yeah, well, this other property next door sold three years ago for this amount. And there's another one down the street, just like it that sold for this amount. So that's, that's pretty easy. But when you're talking about like, say you have a five and a half acre parcel 
And like, there is literally nothing else like it anywhere. You really don't have the data you need to figure that out. Because when you know how, how an appraisal works, you're either looking at the cost approach. So how much did it cost to build this thing from scratch? And you don't have that with land because there's no building on it. Or the income approach. How much money does this property make? Usually with land, that doesn't exist either. It, like with a small residential lot. Or um, there's the sales comparison approach. And that's usually all we have to go by with vacant land. And sometimes that's not available either. So it's, you're kind of guessing, honestly. Even appraisers don't really know what they're doing. And this is part of why a lot of banks don't want to lend on vacant land unless you have a plan to immediately develop that land. Then they're interested. But if you just buy it as land and do nothing to it, a lot of banks won't deal with you unless you get over like 100,000. It kind of kicks into a different category. But um, so anyway, because of that, um, you kind of have to uh, sort of break it down on an acre by acre basis. So see if your property is five and a half acres and there's another one a few blocks away that's 15 acres. And everything else about it is kind of similar, like it's a similar terrain. It's a similar in terms of buildability and the soil type and all this stuff. Then you could sort of break it down on how many acres it is and divide that by the sale price and figure out, well, okay, bigger ones are usually cheaper per acre and, you know, kind of come up with a, a wild guess in a way in terms of like, I don't really know, but just looking at this stuff, I'm pretty sure this is about the range it is. And, uh, and yeah, and this is part of why it's important as a land flipper to make sure you're making a really low offer. So that if you end up being wrong about something, there's still a huge profit margin to protect you. And uh, yeah, it, and it sort of kicks it into a different category if you know you're buying this property and your intent is not just to flip it and do nothing. Your intent is to subdivide it or change the zoning or put a road on it or something like that. That's almost sort of a different business model altogether than just flipping it because all of a sudden now you could pay the full asking price because it's yeah. going to be worth a lot more once you're done improving it. So it's really helpful to understand like what your intent is and what your end goal is once you own that property. So you're not, you're not adding anything to these. You're just straight up buying raw land, flipping raw land. Like you very rarely. Yeah. Typically, that's not to say I've never done that, but usually my goal is to keep it simple and, um, but I, I know, especially in recent years, as things have gotten more competitive, a lot of people have moved into that subdividing niche just because it's harder to buy properties for 40% of market value. And it's a lot easier to buy them at full market value. And you can if you just have a plan to subdivide it and make it worth twice as much as it was before. Makes sense. Yeah, land has been skyrocketing. I mean, all real estate has been yeah. crazy last years. I see houses starting to slow down. I was talking to a big land realtor around here, and he said, according to his data, he said land has not dropped yet. He said, we're seeing sales start to slow. So he expects it, but he said, dude, I've seen no deviance up until this point, Yeah, which is just insane. I mean, I got property on the road, 50 acres from where I live that I want to buy. And they, I keep talking to the guy and he keeps coming back with this price. I'm like, dear Lord, mm -hmm. like, yeah. I'm like, I can't make, and this would be for personal land. Like, Oh my gosh, I just can't make myself do it. It's gotten yeah. so ridiculously expensive. You talked about appraisals. I think it's interesting because I mean, you tell me, because you've been doing this a lot longer than I have. It almost it's, I feel like it's a catch 22. It's bad because you don't know exactly what it's going to be worth, but then also it's kind of good because you don't know what it's going to be worth. I remember talking to a gentleman who was in real estate way before the whole Zillow days. And he's mm -hmm. like, bro, 
he argued whether this is true or not that you could make more like flipping and selling homes before everybody knew comparables because yeah. the appraiser wasn't completely sure the homeowner had no idea mm -hmm. what their house was worth at the time and then they kind of commoditized single family homes to where everybody knows what their home's worth and what it could be worth with just a little bit of yeah data or you know talking to a professional who has that data so yeah. have you run into a lot of issues where appraisers are being a pain in your butt or is it mostly like hey whatever we ask for and we get we're going to check the yeah. box yeah so appraisers are usually not involved at all like when i buy or when i sell because a bank usually is not involved unless it becomes a big deal uh, in that case an appraiser might come into the picture but i've looked at appraisals from friends of mine that have had banks involved and gotten bank appraisals and they're like totally wrong like i look at the comps they use and i'm like okay but you could have just as well used these other ones over here that were worth a lot less it's almost like they're trying to hit a certain loan number and they're just finding whatever they can to support that number rather than like reality so you know i it's just a really squirrely type of uh property to try to figure out objectively what that thing is worth um but you're kind of right i mean in terms of this whole thing of uh yeah like it's sort of good that there's no objective value because now it's it's literally just worth whatever somebody willing to pay for it and if you put together a great listing with great information and get really good pictures at the right time of day from the right angles get drone all this stuff like you can honestly build a case for a property being worth a lot more just by making it look beautiful because a lot of people that buy land they're making an emotional decision and it's what they're buying is a dream not something that they're actually going to do they just love the idea of owning land somewhere that maybe someday they can go build their cottage on that they never actually will, but it's a dream that they're telling themselves. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, that's just kind of how land works, honestly. And you're pretty much selling these to cash buyers mm -hmm. or do you do seller financing on the back end? No, I I've done plenty of seller financing. It's uh, I've kind of gone back and forth on that. Honestly, I, there was a long time where I just wouldn't offer it at all. Cause I, back when I first started doing this, you know, 15 or however many years ago it was, um, I didn't really understand how to do it well, like how to qualify borrowers well and make sure they're actually going to pay and then how to deal with them when they would stop paying and all this stuff. So I was doing it kind of just a, a messed up way and I got burned, understandably. I've you know worked with borrowers that just cut and run and wouldn't talk to me and would leave and all this stuff. And uh, because of that and not knowing what I was doing, I was like, you know what, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. And uh, it was just a few years ago, I started getting a lot smarter about how that works in terms of like, how do you qualify a borrower? And how do you make sure that you're getting a big enough down payment so that no matter what the situation is, you can't get hurt? And how do you walk through the foreclosure process in a way that's a lot less painful and you don't have to do all the work? And uh, so now it's, uh, it's something where if somebody's willing to pay a much higher price and if they need seller financing, then yeah, I'll do that. But usually... If I have the choice, I'd rather just get my cash and move on. Keep it moving. Yeah. <laughs> how did you start acquiring this? This is a big question everybody has, whether you're buying houses, multifamily. How do we buy these things? So have you just kept a lump sum of your own money, bought them in cash or seller finance deals, turned around and flipped them? Have you had partners? Have you raised hard money? What's that look like for you throughout the years? How did you start and how did it evolve over time? Yeah, so for me, I've never taken out a loan for any property I've bought. It's always just been my own cash. And uh Bro, I love you. You're just like the most steady, like, bro, we're not doing anything stupid here. Like, let's just take yeah. our time and live a good life. 
but a lot better life than most because the stress has just been removed. Anyways, yeah. I just had to jump in and say that. I love you. <laughs> and I well, think I'm jealous because I want, it's like, I just want to like come through the screen right now and take some of that and put it in like <laughs> my brain. You know, it's weird, man. It's, it's one of those grass is greener things. Cause like, you're right. There's definitely a lack of, or, you know, less stress, I think. And it's just simpler and that kind of thing. But like, I've given up a lot of opportunities too, just because I'm not comfortable working with funders or I don't want to go through those hoops and that kind of thing. Yeah. Like I, I know people who are willing to do that and they've made way more than me just because they're willing to go out on a limb and maybe not even go out on a limb, but just explore those realms that I haven't been willing to do historically. So, um, so anyway, so, I mean, I've always just done it with cash, but other alternatives I could have done and could do today is there's lots of uh, funders out there now who work exclusive with, exclusively with land. And uh, that's back when I started, um, this kind of thing didn't exist. Like banks didn't want to deal with land, private money lenders and hard money lenders didn't want to deal with land. They all looked at it as like, land is just too confusing. It's too weird. We don't understand its worth. No. But as the land uh, business has gotten a lot more popular over the past years, a lot of people have learned that business and they've even tried that business and realized like there's something here like this works, but I don't want to do the actual work. I just want to fund, fund somebody else in their deals and then I'll split it with them, maybe 50, 50 or 60, 40 or something like that. So there's a bunch of funders out there now who will happily throw their money at you if you can find the deal and close it. And this is how people do these, you know, half million, million plus dollar deals and then sell them for 2 million or however much they're making is they're getting these kind of funders involved and sharing their profits with them. So, Yeah. I mean, you can go big. I mean, whether it's land, self-storage, single family, multifamily, you start raising capital. I always, I don't think a lot of people understand when people, people make the comment, you know, I own a thousand units or 2000 units. I'm like, mm -hmm. and they don't solely own <laughs> now. Some yeah. people, there may be one or two people who own that many, but they have raised capital and they have all these, uh, limited partners and you're able to scale big, but man, you're, you're opening up an entire different beast for yourself yeah. um, than, than doing what you've done. And I think it's very noble. And I think, uh, I think you've probably lived a pretty good life, even if you have missed, yeah, for missed sure. uh, a couple opportunities. So real quick, you switched, you didn't switch. I'm sure you still do land, but you have dabbled in the self storage space. Yeah. Uh, starting uh, in 2021 up until today, what made you, finally deviate from land a little bit and move into the, to the storage space. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's kind of a couple things. So I've always wanted to like do something with the land. Well, I guess I shouldn't say I've always wanted to, but I've been curious about what it would be like if I bought land and actually improved it in some way. And this was a perfect opportunity. I found a 6.7 acre lot, about 18 minutes from my house. And I've also always wanted to get into the self storage business and Back in like 2020, 2021, I started sending out uh, direct mail to all of the self-storage owners within like an hour driving distance radius from where I live, trying to find deals I could buy. And it was, it's a completely different thing than the land business. I mean, it's almost like just forget everything you know about land. It doesn't apply here anymore. Like making super low offers doesn't work. Like that's not going to happen. Like you, the margins are a lot thinner um, and I couldn't find any deals like zero. Like the, the only calls I got back on this direct mail were people that either wanted to know if I could find any deals for them, or if they were willing to sell, they wanted like twice as much as what their place was worth. 
And that was when I came to the conclusion that like, maybe it actually makes sense to build something. Like I, I don't love the risk with that and how much time that's going to take and how much work that's going to do. But like, if you want to get into this business and if there's no other opportunities, like let's create the opportunity, let's put in the sweat equity. And, uh, you know, also being like a blogger and YouTuber, I, I figured this is a perfect opportunity for me to really document this process and show what each step is like. So I made these uh, super in-depth videos, spent tons of time getting footage and narrating everything. And um, it's it was a ton of fun. It was a real adventure, kind of kind of scary at times, kind of uh, uncomfortable at different moments. But, um, but yeah, we built this thing. It just opened up in August of this past, uh, of wow. 2023. And it's like about 30% full now. And it's, uh, interestingly enough, when I got my feasibility study to decide whether to build this thing at all in, you know, early 2021, the market was like red hot. Like they, they predicted this thing would fill up within like six months. And I was like, Holy cow, that's super fast. Cause normally it's like three years to fill these things up. And uh, so made the decision based on that. And during the two year construction process, things slowed down a lot. And now it's much more what I would call normal is what it used to be. And it's filling up a lot slower. So kind of pointing back to the risk of development is that kind of thing where it's like things can change a lot over the course of when you're actually between when you make the decision to do it and then when it's done. So that's been kind of, uh, you know, it's not going bad, but it's, I guess what it points to is like, you better be really sure about what you're going to do. Make sure that like, if things go sideways or get worse, like you're still going to be okay. And luckily that's, you know, yeah. how do you protect yourself? There's gotta be, there's gotta be, what's the word I'm looking for? Like hedge against risk. Like you want to take the upside, but we got to protect ourselves yeah. uh, from any of the bad stuff that can happen too, which I think a lot of people lose sight of that. They just go out. It's like, how do I grow, 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 grow. And it's like, bro, you had no foundation here yeah. to protect you. Should something go South, you mentioned developers. What do you think is going to happen to like homes that are being built right now? Do you think these guys are going to get them sold because we have a supply shortage? Or do you think, just like with the market slowing, the economy rates up, or, or are they in some hot water? You know, I think they're going to sell, honestly. I think for for a good long while, they're going to be moving still. I guess it depends on your market, but I know just like around me, uh, Michigan is actually a state where it's pe more people are moving away than moving to it, and it's been that way for a long time. But even then, like these things are selling like for whatever reason, there's a, a big supply shortage. I don't know if it's because like millennials who graduated and they've been wanting to buy their own home and they can't afford it. So they're living with their parents yep. and there's just a lot of like pent up demand. I don't think they're getting good deals at all. Like I think they're all overpaying and I, I'm exactly. really glad that I'm not in that position because that, that would be super hard and annoying, but, yep. but I, I do think they're going to sell. Like I know that the house just next door to me, um, it's sold for, twice what the thing is worth at a super high interest rate. And I just, I, I don't know why, I don't know why people, people are doing it just because they have no other choice. I don't know, but I, I, I have right. a feeling they're going to sell. So I think so. I think when you break it down to like basic economics, like supply and demand, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So we have a shortage. So I think demand's lowered because of rates, but they're talking about cutting rates. I think the last time they announced they were looking at doing three cuts. And I talked to a, a buddy of mine who works at a big investment firm. And he said, he said, Oh, he thinks now again he doesn't know but within a year and a half he said mid fives mid to lower fives and if that's the case 
I think at that point it's at some point, I think it's going to skyrocket again. Maybe yeah. not as quick as we saw in 2020, 2021 with mm-hmm. the ridiculously low rates with supply being as low as it is. I think you're spot on. It's like, man, they, yeah, there's, there's going to be a lot of opportunity, but could you imagine coming out of college making no. uh, what you make out of college? I've made 45 grand out of college and then yeah. having to go buy a house right now. I know. <laughs> Yeah, I was the same thing, man. I'm sure people are probably making more than you and I were when we graduated, but but even so, like it's just like I don't see how these houses are worth that. Like they're just they're not. It's just a supply and demand sort of artificial boost, it feels like, but I don't know. But is it? That is what's interesting to see. It's like, is it gonna be artificial or are we at this like stage where all right, we just kind of went to the next tier and yeah. we're not gonna drop back down? Like, I got talked to some old guys. And they say the that's the hardest thing they've struggled with their entire life is like when they were a kid, this piece of oh, land, seventies yeah, like or eighties, like this piece of land by the lake was two thousand dollars. Yeah. Well, today that same piece of land is nine hundred thousand dollars. So like in his mind, it's like, bro, it's not worth nine hundred thousand dollars. But it's like seventy years later, it is. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so how do we know what's like real value versus perceived value? I know. Well, that's it's a. Jean Paul Getty has a quote where he says, uh, in times of rapid change, experience can be your worst enemy. And mm. that's that's totally what's going on, I think. And but it's true. It's like, what is normal? Like what is real? And what's the equilibrium supposed to look like? And I don't know. It's tough to figure that out. Dude, I like that quote. Just yeah. this was Gandhi types. So who was that again? <laughs> uh Jean Paul Getty. Jean Paul Getty. I gotta write this down. An old cool. dead guy, but I think he was like I mean, a, a oil tycoon look. or something. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I missed out on, I look at my, my real estate journey. I missed out on some opportunity in Greenville, South Carolina. I live in Anderson, which is a smaller town on the outskirts, mm-hmm. but Greenville started jumping. What was higher than when I originally got in. So I was like, Oh, it's overpriced. <laughs> well, if I would have bought at the original overpriced, I mean, we're talking about, I don't know, 50, hundred percent return, like could have been ridiculous, but yeah. experience way. This is what I was used to. Yeah. And, you know, you miss out on stuff. Yeah. Seth, man, I want to appreciate you for being on. This was fantastic. I love talking about land uh, and, and talking to somebody who's been doing it for a really, really long time. A lot of different markets and you've just stayed true to what's worked. You've done it the smart way. You've done it the slow and steady way. Uh, and I think there is a lot that people can learn from from what you told us today. So again, man, thank you for taking time to, to speak to our listeners and hang out. I'm very grateful to be on your show. Thanks, Jaron. Awesome. Real quick, remind them where's the best place that they can find you and get a hold of you if they have any questions. Sure. So the home base for everything is like is retipster.com. But if you go on any social platform and search for retipster on YouTube or Facebook or wherever, you'll find me there too. Perfect. Go check them out, guys. Seth, thanks again, man. We'll talk soon. All right. Thanks.